This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello and welcome. I'm Alec Hogg and here's episode 47 of Inside COVID-19. got a cracking program for you tonight as we hear some fresh and rather frightening ideas from rock star economists Joe Stiglitz and Thomas Piketty on how the world should pay the bill for the war against the pandemic. They want to see a blanket 25% levy on multinationals including tax dodging tech titans, a wealth tax of between 6 and 8% on the assets of the world's rich and a hike in the marginal tax rate to take it to almost 90% on the earnings of the super wealthy. Also tonight, our London correspondent, Linda van Tilburg, shares context on stories from our partners on a surge in India's infections, why a flu jab may help to ward off a COVID-19 infection, although not in the way you may think, and sensible reasons why wearing a mask when you're out is just like having your seatbelt on in a car. And then we'll close off tonight's program with a plea to the South African government by the Tourism Business Council for its members to be allowed to test their COVID-19 precautions on domestic tourists so that they can prove that by September they'll be safe to honour foreign bookings worth 120 billion rand. Inside COVID-19 from Business. Before we get on to that call from economic activist professors Stiglitz and Piketty for selective tax hikes on multinationals and the wealthy, South Africa's COVID-19 fatalities hit a new daily peak of 88 on Monday, taking the total deaths beyond 1,500. Mortalities in the country are now the 27th highest in the world, but daily deaths are the 10th biggest of any nation. Brazil is the clear global leader in daily mortalities and new cases, with its total deaths of over 44,000 having displaced the UK, which was for a long time in second place. The United States is still by far the most affected country, with more than 2 million confirmed infections and almost 120,000 deaths. Here's Doug Parker. He's been compiling a raft of graphs that we've been publishing every day on BizNews, which proves that a picture tells more than a thousand words. Well, you know, if you look at the patterns of some of the countries that have been through almost their whole cycle, there seems to be a pattern of two peaks. And the peaks can be anything from a week apart to six or seven weeks apart. So it's difficult to say where we are in South Africa right now. But I certainly, in the little simple analog model that I built, I put in two peaks, but my peaks didn't have such, I didn't have such a high level of growth all of a sudden at the very end. So I'm a little concerned that there is a bit of a surge, but it might just be a backlog in the test results. So it's very difficult to know to what extent any backlog is going to affect the daily figures that we're getting through. We saw a spike in South Africa only a couple of days ago. The most recent number at three and a half thousand roughly per day. 
That's right, yes. It dropped from four, just over 4,000 to today with 3,495. You know, that, that's a typical pattern where you have a peak and then it drops back for a little bit, then it builds up to another peak and then it will slowly start to go down. Every day there seems to be a change in the hierarchy in terms of which countries have got the most infections or the most new cases. And the, it's a toss-up as to whether it's going to be Brazil or the USA these days. In today's report, Brazil had 20, nearly 24,000 cases, the USA 20,000. And they've both been around those numbers for quite some time now. India started off very small and it's built up to some 10,000 cases. Russia seems to be having a reducing pattern. The numbers have dropped down to now some 8,000 today. And Pakistan is growing and their numbers are getting bigger. And they're at 5,000 today. So the top five countries account for some 55% of the the, the new cases today. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. If you've listened to any speeches from the South African government in the last five years, you'll find that the word that is being focused on as far as the economy is concerned is inequality and opening up the economy in a way that everybody gets a fair shot at it. The father of inequality theory, if you like, is Professor Thomas Piketty, uh, a French professor at the Paris School of Economics, who brought out a surprise blockbuster book called Capital, which sold two and a half million copies. The key finding in that book was that return on capital is growing quicker than the economy generally, so rich people will keep getting richer until they cut down to size by higher taxes. Piketty believes taxes for the super wealthy should be as much as 90% of their income. Now, what he believes is very important in a country like South Africa because the economic policy in this country does follow very closely the suggestions of people like Thomas Piketty and another very famous economist, Professor Joseph Stiglitz, who is also focusing on the whole inequality question. Professor Stiglitz is a professor at Columbia University and a double Nobel Prize winner. 2001, he won the Nobel Prize in Economics, and in 2007, he shared the Nobel Peace Prize. Professor Stiglitz was the chief economist at the World Bank from 1997 to 2000 and chairman of the U.S. Council of Economic Advisers under President Bill Clinton. They were the feature headline acts of an organization called ICRICT, which is the Independent Commission for the Reform of International Corporate Taxation, uh, which held a press conference earlier this week. I went along, I listened for the full hour, and pulled out some fascinating insights. The starting point is they want all companies to be taxed at least at a rate of 25%. Professor Stiglitz believes that the multinationals have gotten away with taxation murder for too long, and he's got some pretty strong ideas on it. The big multinationals had devised ways of avoiding taxes through tax competition, a race to the bottom, taking advantage of, of tax havens, and so forth. That distorted the economy. That meant the multinationals were getting away with paying lower taxes than small businesses, local businesses were. 
and that distorts the economy. It was also unfair. Among these inequities and distortions, the largest were associated with the Internet companies. Apple and Google famously were paying a fraction of 1% of their revenues and taxes in Ireland. And when Ireland got exposed, uh, Apple moved to the Channel Islands. So the point was uh, they were committed to not paying their fair share of taxes. Uh, and that is what in some ways instigated this movement. So ICRICT is a movement. And ICRICT, according to Professor Stiglitz, is more needed now than ever before. The 2008 crisis made us aware of the tax avoidance activities of the multinationals. And there was a desperate need for money uh, in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis. Well, this is a hundred times worse. A hundred times worse. Maybe he's exaggerating for effect, but the reality is that the COVID-19 crisis is going to leave taxpayers with an enormous bill. So what's next? Stiglitz is calling for 25% tax across the board around the world, starting, though, with a digital tax because, he says, it's just logical. Now, the pandemic, ironically, has helped the very companies that have been the tax avoiders. The Internet companies are the big beneficiaries because they are the people who can continue to operate. They don't require face-to-face personal interaction. So they're the big beneficiaries of the pandemic. And so the pattern of a disproportionate share of the increase in GDP and revenues and profits going to these companies has been exacerbated. At the same time that we're seeing small businesses, local businesses, having a very hard time, companies going to bankruptcy, these companies are doing very well. And part of their advantage is uh, they're not paying their fair share of taxes because they're so profitable. Their marginal costs, their cost of operation are so low that a tax on their overall revenues is close to a profits tax, a pure profits tax, which is non-distortionary. So that's why the proposals as an interim measure until we work out a whole global system of just having a digital tax had a lot of resonance before the pandemic, but now becomes an imperative. These are the companies that were not paying their fair share before. They are the peak companies that have been the beneficiaries of this. It is an unfair system that is distorting our economy, hurting job creation, hurting the recovery. It makes an awful lot of sense to have part of the tax reforms focus on these digital firms as part of the agenda of both the tax reform but and raising the revenues that we're going to need to get out of this crisis. Squarely in the target are the fangs, Facebook, Apple, Alphabet, Netflix, Google, and other companies like that. But every time there's been suggestions that these tech giants should be more harshly treated, there's been a threat of retaliation from the United States. The issue of retaliation in today's world is a difficult problem. My own feeling is that 
probably in November, uh, there will be a new administration in Washington that will believe in a rules-based international system. And part of that rules-based international system is going to be tax cooperation. Uh, you can't have a world where you retaliate whenever you, uh, some, a country does something you don't like. In particular, what we're talking about here is an international framework where we're imposing taxes where uh, the economic activity occurs. And part of what we're talking about in the digital tax is the economic activity of it's only be imposed, for instance, on goods bought through Amazon or some other digital company in Brazil, advertising that is paid for by companies in Brazil. There's an important part of the activity occurring in Brazil. It's not like Brazil is taxing uh, activity that has nothing to do with Brazil. Uh, we should be moving towards a international framework. And uh, that's what ICRED has been advocating uh, since its founding. So what Professor Stiglitz is telling us is that a 25% across-the-board tax on companies like Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Facebook, and other digital giants who are paying very little tax at the moment – will help especially developing countries to fund their recovery by clawing back profits that are made in their countries by these digital giants. Thomas Piketty, on the other hand, thinks that's just the starting point and it doesn't go quite far enough. I, I think it's really important to, to realize that uh, uh, corporate taxation alone uh, is, you know, is not enough. You know, it has to be integrated to a, to a more, uh, you know, comprehensive system of uh, individual level taxation and in particular individual level uh, progressive taxation of income and wealth. Income and wealth. And he proposes up to 90% of the income generated by the super rich. He really wants to see a wealth tax as well. And during the democratic primaries, he had two disciples in Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, both saying that wealthy people in the United States should be paying 6 to 8% of their asset base as a wealth tax. You know, the case for a wealth tax was already very strong uh, before the, the pandemic, but, I, you know, I think it has become stronger. You know, the, the debate, public discussion about wealth tax was uh, already... Uh, uh, you know, changing a lot in the in the recent years. You know, look in the U.S. Uh, political debate in the Democratic primary. You know, there was a lot of emphasis on, on the idea of creating a, a progressive wealth tax. And you know, it's very striking to see that it's actually a very popular idea in the electorate, not only in the Democratic electorate but also in the Republican electorate. And you know, I think uh, uh, you know Joe Biden will be well inspired to borrow some of the ideas that were pushed by Elizabeth Warren and and Bernie Sanders in this area. But it's not only in the U.S. Like in, in Germany, uh, it's very striking to see that the social democrats are now, uh, you know, pushing the, the wealth tax as a, an important part of their of their platform uh, together with other, uh, other political uh, parties. And so the, the debate, you know, in, in Germany, in the U.S., in, in Britain, in, in, you know, in, in France, you know, has been, has been changing a lot. The bottom line is that at a time when, uh, you know, we are going to have to pay 
for a new investment in the hospital system, in the public services, and we are going to have to deal with a very large public debt. You know, the view that nobody uh, will have to pay for anything, which uh, some politicians you know, are trying to push, uh, is simply not credible. I mean, in the short run, you can do away with debt, but you know, at some point, what history tells us is that We'll have to do something with debt, and and in in uh, historical circumstances with very large public debt, uh, uh, you know there are not so many ways to deal with that. It's not surprising that Thomas Piketty uh, refers to history because he has just brought out an 1,100-page book, which has a look at the history of inequality. This actually worked pretty well after World War II. You know, the Germany and Japan in particular used a very large, uh, exceptional uh, wealth tax, uh, you know, up to um, uh, over 50% of the, the very high uh, financial wealth portfolio in Germany was taxed, so 50% of the stock, not, not of the income flow. And in, in Japan, it was up to 70, 80%. And, you know, it was not easy. It was a complicated political fight at the time. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying things are going to happen this way again. But, uh, in, you know, in the end, if you look retrospectively at this episode, this was a huge success because this allowed these countries, you know, to get rid very quickly of a very high level of, of public debt, you know, over 200% of GDP uh, uh, in the end of the 1940s after World War II. And in the space of five to ten years, they were able to basically get rid of that uh, without the bad impact of inflation, which, of course, Germany had experienced in the 1920s, which is probably why they invented this better system in the uh, 50s. So today we are in a different environment, but we, the, you know, the common point and the important lesson from this Story is that we have an unknown crisis, which, which you know, we've never seen something like that, you know, with a complete uh, lockdown and shutdown of the economy. We'll have to invent new solutions, and I think, uh, you know, more uh, equitable tax system, uh, you know, will have to be part of the, of, the, of the solution. That was Thomas Piketty, professor at the Paris School of Economics, and before him, Professor Joseph Stiglitz professor at Columbia University and winner of the 2001 Nobel Prize in Economics. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Our colleague Linda von Tilburg, who's based in London, scours the wires for us. We've got licenses from the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg, and they produce an enormous amount of uh, podcasts on COVID-19, the whole pandemic, and Linda's with us now to tell us about the three stories that you picked up today, Linda, that we're going to be listening to, first of, first of which is India. Yeah, India is really interesting because of the similarities to South Africa. Well, fortunately, we don't have 1.3 billion people. But what makes it interesting, India had a very early lockdown, an initial story of success, which they made the takeoff, like South Africa. But then it was such a costly lockdown. You, you can imagine what it's like to pin down 1.3 billion people at home, send them to their villages. And the cities were empty, but they just couldn't sustain that. So they basically gave up on the lockdown, and now cases has reached 800,000 in July, they think it will be. Um, and, you know, that, that is a tremendous growth suddenly. But what makes it also interesting, it also has the migrant workers that went back to the villages that are now returning to the cities, and that is why there's suddenly a massive growth 
of cases. But there's a silver lining to the outbreak in India. The death rate is fairly low, and this can be explained by its young population. The median age is just about 27, and, you know, it's quite similar to South Africa. We also have a quite a low death rate. Well, compare this to Europe, where the median age is above 40, and we have a largely elderly population. Well, here we have a Wall Street Journal correspondent in India, Eric Bellman, talking to host Mark Stewart about the India cases. Well, what you have to understand is that India, even before the virus, had an underfunded and sort of overstretched health infrastructure. Um, in terms of number of beds, in terms of number of doctors. And now with this tsunami of COVID cases, what was on a regular day already a bad situation has become impossible and unbearable. Eric, as we have been reporting, India has seen a recent surge in cases. But until that happened, there had been some stories of success. Yeah, well, the um, India was smart in that it locked down across the country and relatively early when it didn't have that many cases. And surprisingly for a chaotic country, um, it, the lockdown held pretty well. People did stay in their houses. There wasn't many people on the streets. It seemed to be working. Um, and it definitely delayed this takeoff that we're seeing now and hopefully reduced it. Um, but what was happening at the same time is you've got a country that just has a very high population density, not just in the cities, the mega cities and places like Delhi and Mumbai that have more than 20 million people and some of the highest uh, population densities in the world. But even India's villages are quite dense. You have large families sharing small homes. And so anywhere the virus would get into, it would spread pretty quickly, even with people staying home. And we saw that happen in the slums of India. We saw that happen across Delhi and places like Chennai. The concern now is that the um, lockdown has been eased and millions of migrant workers that were working in the cities have rushed home to their villages. And the concern is those migrant workers are now going to bring the virus to the village. As far as resources are concerned, is the response meeting the needs? It's it's all relative. Certain parts of India are doing okay. Places like Kerala have done relatively well, but big cities like New Delhi and Mumbai are already overstretched. Hospitals are rejecting people. Uh, crematoriums and cemeteries have bodies piling up. Um, the government has had, thanks to the lockdown, has had some extra time to start building some infrastructure, and it's done thousands of beds and hundreds or thousands of ventilators they've brought in and new hospital beds and repurposed lots of different areas. These are difficult and heartbreaking stories to report on, yet are there some areas or reasons for hope based on perhaps the age of the population? One thing uh, we see is that the death rate uh, per relative to population and relative to the number of infections is surprisingly low 
India actually um, is more vulnerable on a lot of sicknesses that aren't trouble elsewhere, things like pneumonia, things that don't kill people as much elsewhere, are often kill children and others in India. And the concern was that this could hit harder in India, but it looks like India has been hit less hard so far in terms of the number of cases. So people are trying to figure out what's going on here. The hope is that the death rate is much lower, and the question is why. The question, uh, it, the, one of the basic theories is that India is a very young country. Its median age is, is around 27, uh, much younger than other places, particularly in countries like the UK and London and Spain, which are generally older, on the older side of the spectrum, uh, which have been hit harder. So the hope is that it's seeing the virus, but because it's hitting, it's, it's running into young bodies, it's killing fewer people. And let's, continue to hope that whatever it is that seems to have been protecting Indians from death will continue. Wow, quite a story. And if you think that they're going to get or that projection to 800,000 infections, that'll take them to, I suppose by then perhaps Brazil will be through a million, but it would certainly be in the top three in the world. Yeah, definitely. But as, as, as they said, it's quite interesting that the cases does not reflect the death rate, which is totally different to the picture we saw in Europe. Indeed. Okay, uh, you've also picked up two other stories. Uh, which one shall we run next? Well, th- this is quite an interesting one, that you know that China thought they were containing the virus. There was no cases in 50 days, but there's now been an outbreak in a market again. And I've just read somewhere that 24 people came into New Zealand that New Zealand declared the virus is gone and they had rugby matches over the weekend. Um, There's new cases in New Zealand as well that I think was contained at the airport. But it just shows you that it's very hard to contain this virus. And the message that the health reporter from Bloomberg had to Carol Massa and Jason Kelly, the two hosts from Bloomberg, she's Michelle Cortez, is that, you know, the, the virus is everywhere and we have to almost become used to it until we have a vaccine and she had this message of you've got to get used to wearing masks like you do you know you wear a seatbelt every day and which is quite an interesting message for for us living in the uk at the moment because in the uk masks are not compulsory well the good thing here in south africa is that everybody does seem to be wearing a mask so that's one area that uh, we are becoming law-abiding and of course when you have a look in asia linda I was talking to my daughter this morning who's teaching English in South Korea. She says everybody wears masks and it's part of the consciousness there. You don't not wear a mask because you'll put other people at risk. Maybe that penny still needs to drop. But let's let's listen to Michelle Cortez talking, as you say, to Carol Mazar and Jason Kelly of Bloomberg. What we're learning is that this virus is a virus like all the other viruses, as we would have expected the fact that most people in the world are still completely vulnerable to this new new type of a bug. There's no natural immunity to it. People had hoped that because it does fall into this kind of seasonal arrangement of viruses that we would see a, a waning of its impact in the summer months. We're not seeing that. We're seeing it still going from one person to the next person as long as there are people to be infected, that virus wants to infect them, and um, we haven't seen a drop, so we're not going to see a second peak. We might just see a, an increasing acceleration, but that's what we're looking at. 
It's hitting some places harder than others, but it has not gone away entirely from anywhere. And so, Michelle, and you and your colleagues have done such a good job of synthesizing this. I mean, this is ultimately the clash that we are seeing, which is public health versus economics and 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 economic health. Uh, in some ways, different states, different localities are dealing with it in a different way. What are we learning maybe on, an, on a state-by-state basis? What jumps out at you that sort of gives us a sense of where we may be headed? Well, the thing that is really jumping out at me is the extent to which this is is circumferential for all of us. It, you have to make your own individual decision. You're going to have to make decisions for your family. You're going to have to make decisions for your city or town. You're going to have to make decisions for your state and for your country. You really can't get away from that when it comes to this situation. Michelle, what do you make about the story about Beijing over the weekend and that about a new outbreak in Beijing that reached nearly 100 infections over the weekend? They talked about, again, linked to a vegetable market, you know, linked to a market. Um, I don't know. How, what is, what, how do you take that into account? Well, that's ex- exactly the situation, right? There is no escaping this virus. That's what we have learned. So we really did think that, you know, that it, they were done in China. They had a terrible outbreak in Wuhan. They closed everything down. They, you know, they really handled it very aggressively. And mm-hmm. there was nothing happening there for 50 days. They had no cases. But you just have to let one or two people in. You get that rebounding again. And when you still have this completely vulnerable population because they haven't had this virus, and that's it. Like the herd immunity says, somewhere between. 60 and 80 percent of people either have to be immunized and you can't do that because it doesn't exist or you have to be infected. That's only going to give you one outlet. But again, to your point, we can't shut down the world. So we're going to have to figure out how to live with it. Yeah. And so to that exact point, Michelle, what seems to have worked from a public health perspective, barring complete shutdown, which I think it's safe to say a lot of government officials, state officials especially, are really resisting. And certainly we know that that's going to be resisted at the federal level. What seems to be working? It seems like this virus is actually pretty fragile. If you hit it with any kind of cleaning supplies, it seems to take care of the virus. If you wear a mask, the, the numbers that we're getting, I mean, there were studies early on that showed that people who were living with the very first people who were infected, when we knew almost nothing about it, they could live with somebody who was infected in the same household and not pass it along. We saw some cases when it came to the, the destroyer and the aircraft carriers, the number of patients who came out of that, that it was dramatic. If you wore a mask and tried to social distance at all, you were so much more protected than if you weren't. So we're going to have to drill down and get a little more clarity on that. But it is undisputably true that if you are taking actions to protect yourself, those are having significant effects and might have even more dramatic effects than anyone realizes. So I know that it's, you know, our country's kind of come divided about whether you wear a mask, what does that mean, what is that telling other people? But that's the concern, I think, in some of these places like Florida and Texas, where we have people going to bars and going to beaches, and they're not wearing masks, they're not protecting themselves, and we're seeing these surging infections. So it's like wearing a seatbelt. I mean, it's not going to hurt you to wear it at this point. 
And it's not brain surgery either that you need to understand all of that. The Asians have been wearing masks ever since they had SARS more than, what's it, nearly 20 years ago. Uh, now the rest of the world needs to come in line, Linda. Yep, definitely. Well, especially the UK. I just don't understand why they're so resistant. The only place where you have to wear a mask is on the tube, or and you don't have to wear in the shop, although they advise it. The, the UK has this thing. They don't want to force people to do things, but eventually they are forced to ask, you know, to tell people, wear a mask, but they haven't done that yet. But surely it's, it is a disease that is passed through droplets, uh, through saliva, really. So as long as you wear a mask, you cannot infect other people. And if we all wear masks, well, as she was saying, it's a fragile uh, virus. You wash your hands, wear a mask, things will be better. Maybe that's why the death rates are so high in certain parts of the world where people, I guess, take it, take their lives into their own hands. But there is a, a way of protecting yourself as well, and that's another interesting story you picked up. Yeah, it's get a flu jab, which is quite interesting because I've listened to it. The idea is not that the flu jab can prevent COVID-19. Obviously, nothing can. It's that if you have the jab, you have less of an impact on health services. You don't go to a doctor or a hospital where you, first of all, may be more vulnerable to contract it because there might be other people there who has it. And um, it's also the idea that if you have more people vaccinated, there's a less acute flu season and your immunity is better. Um, but but also interesting, this reporter, which is Max Neeson from Bloomberg, he also comments on vaccines and where we are with vaccines right now. He talks about a Chinese vaccine and also the one from Moderna. It's quite interesting that the Americans don't often talk about the British, maxi- British vaccines. But as you know, there's the one from the Jenner Institute from Oxford University and AstraZeneca. And they say they will be ready to deliver that vaccine from October. Well, and they're always this proviso if it works, and which they say will provide protection for about a year. That's something new they've come out with. Human trials are, are busy, and AstraZeneca has reached agreements to supply about 2 billion doses across the world. And the results of their clinical trials are expected in August or September. And today, or was it a day ago, Imperial College had announced that they will start the first clinical trial of a potential COVID-19 vaccine, and they got funding for that of about £45 million from the British government. Before we go into this piece on the flu jab, the stories that are coming through the UK, I've seen something on the BBC, and our colleague Jackie Cameron, the editor of Biz News, posted something about the Telegraph. Uh, an anti-inflammatory medication, dexamethasone, I hope I got that right, uh, which does seem to, in the trial that they've put forward there, it does seem to help those who are really in advanced stage, in other words, already on ventilators. Yeah, what, what happens, I've, I've actually know somebody who, who had a family member that went into hospitals. When they go into hospitals, they ask whether they are prepared to be part of the trial. And I sometimes think these trials are quite, quite cruel because, you know, there are people who get a placebo, who, you know, would not get the real thing. And, and they, that's, that's how they test their type through hydroxychloroquine in the beginning as well. And yes, they've actually said that, um, oh, just repeat the name, please, Alex. Dexamethasone. <laughs> I've got it oh, in yeah, front the, of me. 
that one. I, w- I was actually hoping there was a, there was a nice um, name that you you know n- n- that doesn't have the full pharmacological name, but sort of a, a commercial name that you can a brand name that I, that I could have used. Um, but yeah, apparently that's been promising. There's a couple of things that they think does help. Um, I, you know, some of the you've also spoken to some of the scientists who say a cocktail of things are helping, and but they are getting a lot better of keeping people alive in ICUs. You know, initially, something like, I think, 80%, 90% of people who went on ventilators didn't make it. And those figures have come down to something like 30%. So the medicines that they are using, there isn't a silver bullet yet, but there's more and more medication, and they all seem to be anti-inflammatory ones that seem to be working. Well, uh, mankind has been set a huge challenge here and is rising to the occasion. But the virus uh, will, well, there'll be some protection at least from having a flu jab. Let's uh, hear that story that Linda picked up. I think what we're seeing with with cases spiking in a number of U.S. states is is pretty clear confirmation that the COVID-19 is going to be around in a significant way for some time to come, considering that, you know, many states never quite got it under control and um, have sort of proceeded with openings without necessarily having developed the, the sort of track tracing, isolating capabilities they, they need to keep incidents low over the long run. That means we'll have cases in the fall as, um, you know, you get the seasonal return of flu. And these are viruses, um, diseases that can look similar uh, both of which can, can land people in the hospital. And, um, you know, in combination, if you get a particularly severe flu season, you have the potential to, to further overwhelm uh, healthcare and hospital systems and create a lot of extra sort of confusion and fear um, from people that, that might think they have COVID but, but have flu and then uh, potentially, you know, uh, uh, go get tested and just a lot, of, a lot more burden on, on testing and, and healthcare providers. So, um, you know, in, in terms of something that, that the federal government and state governments can do ahead of time, ahead of that, that potential uh, result is roll out to a greater extent um, a flu vaccination program, try to get a, a higher proportion of the population vaccinated. And while the, the effectiveness of the flu vaccine can vary um, depending on the strain and, and to what extent vaccine developers get it right, I nearly always provide some degree of protection and really ahead of the autumn, anything that we can get to reduce the burden is worthwhile. So really the argument, Max, has nothing to do with coronavirus itself. It's just this may help you not get flu, which will help the system in terms of not overwhelming hospitals or doctor's offices, and it may keep you away from coronavirus-plagued areas as well should they reemerge. What about the different strains of flu What's the likelihood that this season's flu vaccine will work better than other seasons, if at all? Um, you know, that, that's something that we won't know much about until until we, the flu virus actually starts to circulate. But, you know, I think the, the a couple extra things to add on, on why this effort is worthwhile. First is, you know, the flu will already have a harder time if people are taking some degree of distancing steps, masking, um, you know, using greater hygiene efforts, adding even, uh, um, you know, an average or, or less than average uh, vaccine on top of that should lead to a, a much less acute season, and then that's worthwhile. On top of that, any effort to expand vaccination, um, get people connected with providers, 
uh, create, you know, more accessible vaccination sites, target the sorts of population that don't always get vaccinated. That can be reapplied, uh, reused in the future when we get a COVID vaccine, because, you know, it's not just getting to a vaccine, but, but getting it um, in enough of a population that you can have that, that sort of broad protective effect. That's going to be a huge challenge. And anything we can do to build that infrastructure ahead of time while doing something else useful should, should be very helpful. So, Max, I know this is a, a very fluid uh, area here, but give us a sense of kind of where we are in terms of the vaccine. I know we've got many, many uh, groups, many companies, many research universities working towards it. Kind of give us just the 30,000-foot view of where we are right now. Uh, still in, in very early stages. Uh, we, we just got some limited data from a vaccine out of China, Sinovac vaccine. Uh, and, you know, it, it looked – it's what you wanted to see, some degree of – immune reaction, uh, no severe safety events, but as with Moderna, pretty limited data disclosure. Um, you know, we're really, there, there's going to be sort of a low bar for moving into larger studies because we, we want to try as many different vaccine approaches as possible. It's going to be some time before we have a really solid sense of what's likely to succeed and, and when and what, what the most effective vaccines will be. So still early days, but, but lots of progress being made. Now, we have openings in a lot of places, retail outlets in England selling non-essential items open today for the first time. Obviously, places like New York are beginning to reopen as well. But Dr. Anthony Fauci suggested bans on travel to the United States may remain until a vaccine arrives. How likely is that, Max? Uh, You know, I, I think it depends on the situation going forward. And, and it, you know, some of those will be, you know, directed at other countries, other countries that still have severe outbreaks. Other countries may be hesitant about letting people travel here, uh, just be considering that the virus continues to circulate at high rates. It, it all depends on the extent to which, um, you know, states take action to, to keep renewed outbreaks under control, uh, continue to, to do all of the many things governments can do independent of the vaccine. To, to keep incidents low in the long run. Interesting point. The uh, final one there, Linda, about the air travel. Um, com- coming up, yeah. uh, coming up in our next uh, interview is um, uh, the chief executive of the uh, Tourism Council, uh, who's arguing for air travel back into South Africa from. Uh, uh, international destinations so that the tourism industry can start picking up. Apparently there are many bookings or many advanced bookings, around 60% of the normal turnover of the year is foreigners who come in during September and they are trying to get government to bring the tourists in. Um, but that's a, a story coming up in a moment. It appears though from what Max was saying there, that in the United States, there's, uh, they might not be allowing anyone out for, for a while. It, it looks, <clears throat> looks like that. And something I saw today, there's an Israeli company who apparently came up with what they called a smart card. You know, in other words, that you get a COVID-19 profile on a card and that allows you to travel. But I think that's really controversial. Inside COVID-19, Trumpers News. Well, it's common cause that the hardest hit sector in the South African economy is tourism. It employs hundreds of thousands of people, brings in billions of rands a year to the country, and it has effectively had its market evaporate. Chifiwa Chifengwa 
is the Chief Executive of the Tourism Business Council of South Africa, and I caught up with him earlier today. Things are really bad at the moment in the sector. As you know, we have been on a lockdown for just over three months now. And prior to lockdown, when this disease started to hit the world, of course, a lot of people were starting to be fearful of traveling. It means that, you know, we had more cancellations coming in. And when the lockdown came in, then things just got worse. We did thought that uh, lockdown was going to be for the initial period, but uh, of course, government went to the risk adjuster strategy, and now we are where we are. So things are bad. A lot of people are on a UAFTS program. I'm estimating that this month we're going to have around 160,000 to 200,000 people that are going to be on UAF. I'm estimating that there will be retrenchments coming in this month. I know that a lot of companies are studying those negotiations. Some have already done those negotiations, so it's bad. These are people that were not expecting to lose their jobs. The industry was on a road to recovery, but uh, we are where we are now, where things are really, really, really bad. And we're hoping that we, we're going to risk that soon. What about air travel into South Africa? Has that stopped completely for tourism? Yes. At the moment, there is no air travel for tourists, leisure tourists into South Africa. When we talk about inbound, so what we have is repatriation flights that are bringing people back into the country and those that are taking people out of the country. Now, on the domestic front, we don't have anyone allowed to do any travel for leisure purposes. You're only allowed to do travel for business purposes, essential workers, and those that are working within government space that are allowed to travel. So things are totally quiet. In essence, nothing is happening. Hotels are closed. It's a situation that's unprecedented and no one ever expected. Nightmare, if you think of it. Uh, your Overnight, your market has just dried up. But... How do you change this, or when will it change? What level of lockdown are your members going to be able to open their doors again? We're hoping that things that we've put in place now in terms of mitigating the spread of the virus within the tourism value chain by way of putting together protocols that we've submitted to the Department of Tourism will enable government to say, you know, let's open tourism. Even if it's a phased approach uh, where we can say, certain activities are allowed to happen. So we are hoping that uh, government can, first of all, open domestic leisure travel, allow people to travel across the border for leisure purposes, as well as business purposes. Once the government allows those things to happen, it means that we can practice on the basis of the protocols that we get, and we should be able to prove to the world that we are ready to receive inbound tourists. If we do that for a month, I believe that we can then give ourselves a month to plan for inbound tourists. We can start with the various countries that we could select, sit down and select and say these countries pose the same risk or lower risk to us. Therefore, let's make sure that we have a bridge between ourselves and that country and we can start to welcome tourists. So those are the kind of things that we need to talk about with government and things that we ought to do. But we have to move fast. We don't have the luxury of time. What's the response been like from government? So far, the response has been very positive. As the Tourism Business Council, we have met with the Minister of Tourism as the political custodian of the industry. Uh, we have met with the Department of Tourism, the DG, as someone who's you know working with the net joints and everybody else from the technical level. We have even gone further and met with the president of the country, where we presented the case for tourism. And we also did so with the Portfolio Committee on Tourism and Parliament. So we have gone to all spheres of government. We have spoken to all the people that we need to speak to. We hope that 
what we have presented is a compelling case to reopen the sector and to make sure that there is economic activity within the value chain of tourism. Like I said, if we don't do that, it's going to be a devastation. I know of many companies that are waiting to press the button for retrenchment. We do know that the UIF has been pronounced on whether they're going to expand the UIF TS program. So we're going to be left with nothing. The whole industry will be decimated. Uh, it, it's going to be difficult to rebuild. So th- that's the message that we're sending to government to say, listen to what we are saying on the ground. We have been in this sector for quite some time. There are many leaders in the sector that have made their voice heard. And if we don't listen now and act now, uh, of course, we have to act in, in a responsible way to make sure that we protect the lives of the citizens of the country, we protect our staff, and we protect our clients through the protocols that we've produced. Are people in your sector hanging on by the skin of their teeth, or have many of them given up? Look, many of them are still hanging on, but the patience is, is drying out. I talk to lots of industry leaders, people who run big companies that are just barely, barely getting by. And if there is no certainty in terms of where things are going to go to normal, well, the new normal, they are going to take those batteries and start to retrench. So they are barely, barely hanging. We haven't received any massive assistance from government in terms of assisting businesses, especially those businesses that are bigger, that are beyond 300 million rent threshold that the government has put out. So what do we do with those businesses? Because we have many of those businesses that employ a lot of people. And that's what we've said to government and to the president, that it is important that we look at big businesses because they produce higher numbers of employment. And, of course, we need to support SMEs because they are the lifeblood of the tourism industry and they produce unique experiences. Those need to be supported. And, of course, those medium-sized, you know, they've got a lifeline in terms of their government guarantee loans. But the big businesses are struggling. And when big businesses struggle, it means that the medium size and the small and the smaller businesses that are dependent on the bigger businesses are going to suffer. Then we destroy the entire industry. So we are sitting on a recipe for disaster at the moment. If we don't act fast, if we don't open the industry, uh, and if we don't extend the UIFTS program, in next month we'll be talking about something totally different. It's that soon. It's it's a month. If nothing happens in the next month, things could be really bad. Absolutely. You're not at a stage already where it's going to take a lot of rebuilding. We look at the economy generally, and we know some economists say it's going to take five years just to get back to where we were at the beginning of this year. Yeah. Are you not in a situation like that? So I think that we're in a situation where if we, one, are certain of opening the domestic market, and two, are concretely certain about the international market, we should be able to recover the summer months bookings. There are a lot of people who are holding forward book from September going forward. And that's about 60% of our income, especially for the inbound. And remembering that inbound brings in around 120 billion rand. So it's a significant amount of money. So if we don't protect that forward book, we're going to be sitting in a situation where that forward book could be lost forever. And people will consider that destination and will be on the back of the queue. Then it's going to take us five years, three years to really come back on, you know, to be on top of my destination. So we need to decide. Do you get any sense that government is listening to you? That they, they will realize you can't switch on and off an economy, that it is a, a vibrant thing that needs to be protected. And unless they give you this kind of certainty, 
that in fact there is no coming back from that 120 billion you've spoken about? Uh, look, you know, we believe that the government is listening. We are appealing that the presentation that we have done and the listening that have been done by government has to turn now into action. We need to give certainty. And as you know, in any economy, uh, an economist will say to you, as long as you give me some level of certainty, I'm able to predict what's going to happen. So that's why I'm saying that if, if we have a certainty that says, come September, at the least, inbound is going to open, I am certain that we're going to protect and preserve that 60% of inbound that comes during that time. I know that if we don't do that, we're not going to protect that 60% that comes from inbound. I do know that, you know, domestically, a lot of people don't have money because of the massive job losses that are, are here. So many people are not going to be able to travel for leisure purposes. But you always have the core group of people that will be able to travel and they've done so for many, many, many years. So we need to protect that and make sure that there is movement. We can practice, you know, the wheels of the family chain are greased and they are able to start moving. If we don't do so, the recovery is going to be tougher. It means that, you know, we're going to have to rebuild from the ground. And the, the, the biggest thing is that we're going to lose the SMMEs that we've been building over the past 25 years. Those that entered into this industry post-94, you know, stand a big chance of getting out of the industry. So we need to protect that. And I don't think we have a choice in this matter. And that's what I've been communicating to, to government. In, in a country like ours where unemployment was already high, now it's even going higher. The choice that we have in front of us is job creation. But of course, doing so, protecting lives, Let's protect the livelihoods of those that work in the industry. Let's make sure that, you know, we're not spreading the virus across ourselves. And we can only do so with the protocols that we put together. So that's what we've been appealing to government to say, we are ready to open. We are ready to operate. So if I put it in a nutshell, you have prepared yourself. You've got the protocols within the tourism sector that will make sure that you protect your own staff and the visitors who come through or the customers. You need government now to give you a chance to practice those protocols or prove the protocols on a local market before September, because in September, if you lose the international market, well, they might go somewhere else in the world. Have I got that right? No, absolutely. We need to build the trust. The international market, the travelers, when they start to travel again, especially when they come to our country, which one, we are in Africa, there's already connotations about being in Africa. Number two, we are a long-haul destination, uh, so we're competing with many other countries. So we need to prove as a sector that the protocols that we put in place can be trusted, they prevent the spread of, of the virus, they are hygienic, they are safe, and we can only do so by practicing in our own local market, and we've been doing so with the quarantine hotels that we operate in Cape Town, here in Johannesburg, and many other places around the country, including by the border gates. So we have been practicing this and perfecting this. So what we're saying is that give us a chance. Let's practice on a wider scale. Open up domestic leisure travel. We can prove to the world that they can trust us as a destination. When the world stopped traveling in 2011, through the September 11 events, travelers had to trust that when they go to the airport, they will go through the machines to scan and do so forth and so on. Then that trust starts to come back, the confidence come back. So we need to do the same thing in our context. We need to make sure that the protocols are practiced. The world can see that we're doing good. They can see that we are very comprehensive. 
we're practicing hygiene. There are people that are coming into our establishments. There are people are renting cars. They're going on safaris. They're going on activities. They're going on small conferences and so forth and so on. And we've got to do that, starting with local, and we've got to do that now. This has been episode 47 of Inside COVID-19. Thanks for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.